Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you ever just stop and think for a few moments? I imagine you do. We all do. Um, just start, stop and think about your thinking. And stop and think about your, your being. Meta-thinking? Yeah, a bit. You know, you're just, you're, you're sitting there. Maybe you're just doing something you do every day. You're almost on autopilot. And then you stop and you think, and it's like, and you, you realize, I'm this individual in this hominid species that's evolved to this state where I'm, I'm standing here in this artificial structure uh, that other people built for me, other people designed for me, standing on the backbones of, of other designers. I'm, I'm wearing clothes for some reason, and I'm loading a, a dish, uh, dishwasher, and I'm thinking about my thoughts. Yes. I mean, how you could not work on this podcast and not have this sort of self-awareness to mm-hmm. that degree, I have to say, because of everything that we are researching, sometimes it is a matter of just being really overly aware of your conscious mm-hmm. and what you're doing and wondering if the thing that you're doing at that very moment is even uh, something that is free will. Yeah. Or you're doing it because you're subconsciously colored by some other experience. So, yes. And I, I think it's fascinating, this idea of consciousness, because as David Eagleman says, we're the only species that that takes our own operating system and then sort of looks at it. Like the operating system comes up and sort of looks at the screen and says, what are you? What am I? Yeah. So what we're talking about, when we're talking about the operating system in the screen, we're obviously talking about this mind brain problem. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the mind brain problem, the, the mind body problem. Though I feel like mind brain problem is more of an accurate uh, description uh, because uh, what we're talking about here is, of course, that uh, inside of this uh, squishy meat body, we have this physical brain, mm-hmm. this 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 brain that is a part of our, part of our body. Mm-hmm. All right. And out of this brain, this brain manifests the mind. The mind, of course, is our thoughts, the things that happen to us every day, our wanting to do something, our experience of doing something, our wishing we had not done something, all of these things that come together into this storm of consciousness. Yeah, because on the one hand, you have this very concrete uh, three pounds of gelatinous goo stuff, right? Yeah. Christoph Koch, uh, the neuroscientist, calls it uh, the most complex object in the known universe. Right, because it's composed of roughly 100 billion neurons that each electrically spike in response to outside stimuli. So you have all this going on, mm-hmm. but then you, you have the concept of mind or the concept of self or self-awareness that you know that all these things are going on outside of you and inside of you. Yes. So one is not the other, but certainly one arises from the other. Yeah. We stu- we continue to study the brain nonstop. We continue to study the mind. Uh, psychologists are working. Neuroscientists are working. Philosophers are working. Theologians are working. Uh, and, and, and in our own part and our own individual work, we are struggling to sort of figure it all, all out. But we just continue to, to wrangle uh, and, and fail to comprehend the, uh, the psycho physical nexus between the two. And this is where we get into the mind-body problem. Um, we work towards the answer, but we can't grasp it. Not and, yet. And why is it important? Because to me, it is the holy grail of our existence. If yeah. we could find the center of consciousness, if we could pinpoint it, then we could somehow, we think, uh, explain how it is that we came to be here, perhaps, uh, what it all means, uh, you know, it sort of opens up, this one door opens up portals to, to many other doors of our existence. 
Yeah, I mean, our consciousness is our experience of the world. It's our experience. It is it is us. So in, in a sense, it's figuring out what we are, really, on a, on a deeper level than pure organism. Uh, I mean, it, and it's easy. It, this is a question that trails off at all the ends into, into various uh, uh, less scientific fields as well. I mean, it's easy to spill over. I mean, because, because again, it's the, it's the subject of not only neuroscience and, uh, and, and, of, uh, and of psychology. It's also the stuff of philosophy and, and theology. It's stuff that we've wrangled with since our ability to, uh, to question what consciousness is and to, to grasp some notion or at least grasp after the question of consciousness. Okay, so before we do sort of an overview of various philosophies uh, behind consciousness or ideas about consciousness, let's talk about something called the mirror test, which you actually have a video on right now. Yes, which oddly enough does not fe- fe- feature a, uh, a mirror. But uh, but uh, but yeah, so we're always trying to figure out what consciousness is, obviously. And uh, one of the hallmarks of consciousness, one of the things that we can say, yes, this is definitely on the list uh, mm-hmm. when we try and figure out the attributes of human consciousness, self-awareness. Uh, because again, I look at the ideas. I look in a mirror, and what do I see? I say, "Hey, that's me. Who's that uh, handsome devil, or who's that weirdo with uh, with uh, ketchup on his face?" You know, we we see that, that that's us, and uh, and it, at the very least, we're it, it makes us think about ourselves. Right. So you have this mirror test, which is again that measure of self awareness. This was developed by Gordon Gallup Jr. in the seventies. And he used it to ascertain consciousness in animals, as well as identify when children were entering into the mirror stage of self-awareness. So the idea is you put a mark on an animal. Yeah, on the face, somewhere where they, they can't see it without a mirror. Yeah. And they also can't feel it. So right. you, like a, you couldn't just like stab them with something because they're going to feel it. Right. So yeah. you'd have to use a little subterfuge here, right? Yeah. So presumably they look into the mirror before the mark is on them, right? Mm-hmm. And then they have the mark on them. They turn and they look, and it's then observed whether or not the animal is reacting in a manner consistent with being aware that the mark is located on their body. Are they turning around to get a better angle on mm-hmm. it? Are they seeing that something is awry or amiss? Uh, so animals that have passed the mirror test, uh, we're talking about chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, dolphins, elephants, and possibly even pigeons. Uh, yeah, European magpies on the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, this we've had extensive conversations about personhood, so we won't go into that. Um, if you're interested in learning more about that, definitely check that out. But there's this idea that consciousness exists not just in humans, but uh, in, in other species, and it complicates things in a way. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, one of the ones that I keep coming back to is uh, the octopi, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, if, if you give an octopus a straight-up mirror test, they're going to fail it because... Um, their brains have evolved almost in, um, entirely separately from uh, from mammalian brains, mm-hmm. so they're they're not as uh, as clued into these visual uh, to a visual understanding of the world around them. Uh, they they can reference a mirror, but they don't see it as themselves. But then there are a number of other tests that you can give an octopus, and and you know stuff like tool use and, and learning and uh, and uh, so, some other attributes begin to line up to to really make an argument for uh, octopus consciousness. So. It, like a lot of this stuff, it comes down to how are you going to measure it? How are you going to, uh, and, then, and then how are you going to, to judge the measurement? Well, the, I mean, the same thing with gorillas. They tend to not look at each other in the eyes or themselves in a mirror mm-hmm. in the eyes because it's a sign of aggressiveness. So they fail the test, yeah. even though they probably have a conscious, right, or mm-hmm. a self-awareness. Um, so you're right. That's, it's not a foolproof way to say definitively, this is what consciousness is, at least in this one aspect, and, and the following uh, species have it. So 
we thought it was would be interesting to look at a couple of brain mapping projects in the context of this conversation because the brain mapping projects, which we've talked about before, like the Blue Brain Project, um, this is this idea that you could reverse engineer the human brain and you could begin to see all these processes happening inside of it. And, uh, you know, much like some of the fMRI technology that we talked about mm-hmm. in terms of crime and, you know, trying to figure out whether or not someone had uh, committed a crime based on what was going on in their hippocampus, in their memory, the same thing could happen in, in a sense where you could begin to understand the mysteries of the human brain, this idea of consciousness. Like maybe this would manifest itself in these projects. So uh, we're talking about the Human Brain Project, and this is an attempt to construct a massive computer simulation of the brain. This is a European initiative, and Henry Markram is the coordinator of this. He's also the Blue Brain guy. Yes, And then there's also this Brain Activity Map Project, and this is a decade-long scientific effort to examine the workings of the human brain. This is what Obama, uh, back in, I think, April, announced something like a $3 billion Mm -hmm. um, budget against that. And so that is this idea that you can build a comprehensive map of its activity and try to do the same thing for the brain that was done for the Human Genome Project. So we'll talk more about that later, but we are so interested in the brain, how it works, and again, these mysteries that are wrapped up in it, including consciousness, mm-hmm. that uh, we can't help but to, to try to decode it. All right. So let's uh, back up just a little bit, um, you know, just a few centuries or so, and, and talk about uh, some uh, some very various philosophical ideas about what consciousness is and uh, and and how we're supposed to deal with the uh, with the mind body problem. Uh, and it's worth uh, worth noting that. Um, that uh, so many of the uh, the philosophers we're going to point out here, they weren't only philosophers. They were also also sometimes mathematicians, biologists, uh, just general men of science. And then part of the uh, the questing after these answers involved uh, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and these were uh, I should also mention that these uh, particular examples were brought up by philosopher Colin McGinn uh, at this year's uh, World Science Festival in the Whispering Mind: The Enduring Conundrum of Consciousness. Uh, and we're going to talk about McGinn himself in a bit as well. So let's go back to the days of Rene Descartes. So it's uh, 1596. I think, therefore, I am. He was a dualist. He saw the mind and body as separate. He said the essence of mind is thought, and body is an extension of it. Uh, thoughts are not extended in space, but the body is. Uh, there was Leibniz, born in 1646. He made this analogy of the mill, okay? If you walked through the meat of the brain, or more likely, I guess, just pod your hand around in it, you wouldn't see thoughts. You'd only see electrochemical mechanisms. Uh, so he stated that the mind exists invisible, but there's harmony between mind and body. Uh, then you had Thomas Huxley, born in 1825, and he compared the conscious mind and the physical brain to a genie and a lamp. Uh, you, rub the, you rub the lamp, in this case, the physical brain, and out of it uh, manifests this this uh, ephemeral genie, this uh, consciousness, okay? And uh, and so the, the argument uh, that he's making here is that, uh, uh, that we, we just cannot equate the two because here we just have irritating nervous tissue and here we have the wonders of human consciousness. And Huxley was an epiphenomalist. Uh, so he was a dualist, but he saw the mind as kind of a byproduct of the brain, uh, not necessary to the day-to-day operations, but kind of a shadow cast by uh, by this uh, by this organ, which uh, I, I think is very interesting when we we think back to some of what we've done about uh, free will and about mm-hmm. subconscious uh, activities in the brain and this idea that that our experience of thought uh, and even body is kind of uh, what happens above the surface of a dark sea. 
And there's a lot that goes on underneath the waves that we're not privy to. But that's where most of the sausage is being made. Then there's uh, author Eddington, born in 1882, and he's, uh, he argued that consciousness is not sharply defined, but fades into subconsciousness. And then you have, uh, then you have some uh, contemporary philosophers worth uh, men- mentioning. Saul uh, Kripke, he said that mind and brain are not identical. Uh, and you can just look at pain. If we look at pain as it's experienced in the brain uh, via uh, scans and uh, neural activity, it's rather different from the way we experience it. So we have, we have problems when we start trying to rate pain. Like, what is, what is a level seven pain? And uh, there's some efforts uh, right now to try and do just this. But uh, but it's not as, as simple as just saying, what well, did that hurt? How much did that hurt? Was that a five or a six? And expecting that to pan out among everyone's experience. It's the subject, subjective nature of consciousness. And then you had Nagel, who, argued, who said that the consciousness cannot be reduced to the brain. And then finally, Colin McGinn, uh, the new Mysterianism uh, guy, and we're going to talk about him in a bit. Well, you know what? There's also this idea that different day, different brain, right? I mean, that there is not this illusion that we have a stasis in both our concept of ourselves, our self-awareness in the world. Um, This changes from day to day based on our experiences, Um, not to mention chemical changes in the brain. Yeah, our mind changes constantly. We're we're not the same person we were a year ago, five years ago. We're not necessarily the same person we were yesterday. And uh, and the, the brain changes as well. A, a lot of the, the dualist arguments are that the the mind and brain are separate entities, but that they are that the mind can change the brain and the brain can change the mind. Um, I, I tend to really like that uh, like the idea of the of the mind as the shadow cast by the brain. Uh, that one seems to, to resonate more with my own personal experience. Well, especially when you look at something like the placebo effect. We've talked about this before, mm-hmm. about how someone can take the side effects um, and they can take the placebo drug and consider those side effects, right? The ramifications, who you know, their self-awareness, how they're going to operate in the world with this knowledge that they could fall asleep at the wheel or get hives or whatever other side effect available to them, and then it manifests in them yeah. physically. So here you have the brain and the, and the mind acting on each other. And it really does blow the mind when you start thinking about it. It's yeah. Because in, you can see where the, the, the problem of, res- of, of rectifying these two things really grows and just becomes increasingly difficult to wrap your mind around. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we can begin at the beginning. Uh, when do we become truly conscious? All right, we're back, and we are going to talk about the darkness that comes before consciousness, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, specifically in the womb. Uh, neuroscientist Christoph Koch, or Koch, I believe. Yes, it? yeah. And he was on this panel at World Science, and he's quite the firebrand. He is. Yeah. He is uh, so much fun to listen to and to watch, actually. Uh, he is uh, writing for Scientific American as well, and in the article, When Does Consciousness Arise in Human Babies, he talks about something called the thalamo cortical complex, and he says this provides consciousness with its highly elaborate content, and it begins to uh, be put into place between the 24th and the 28th week of gestation, okay, within the womb. And then he goes on to say that uh, a lot of the, the circuit elements necessary for consciousness are in place by the third trimester. But, he says, because there's this idea, well, you know, could could a fetus be conscious? Could yeah. it have some sort of awareness? He says uh, that 
the the fetus is suspended in a warm and dark cave connected to the placenta that pumps blood, nutrients, and hormones into its growing body and brain. The fetus is asleep. So it's a very interesting article. I encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight a couple points from it. Uh, he goes on to detail the various ways in which the fetus essentially is sedated within the womb. Mm-hmm. And then he says, the dramatic events attending delivery by natural vaginal means cause the brain of the fetus to abruptly wake up. The release from anesthesia and sedation that occurs when the fetus disconnects from the maternal placenta arouses the baby so that it can deal with its new circumstances. It draws its first breath, wakes up, and begins to experience life. Yeah, and it's it's pretty much the, the biggest wake-up of all time like it, it's really difficult to even try and like put it in like adult human terms mm-hmm. like the the closest thing i can think of is um, i my mind goes back to some of the uh, uh recent experiments with psilocybin uh that have been conducted where mm-hmm. they're injecting individuals with psilocybin so there's like this blast off moment where they're just suddenly uh experiencing intense psychedelic experience mm-hmm. like that has got to be at least similar to what's going on here, because they're just going from zero to a hundred, just like that. Suddenly they yeah. are sensing the world. They are, uh, in a limited sense, seeing the world and everything's just coming at them. They're, they're, uh, and they're, they're, they're unhooked from this, uh, life support system that, that, that has previously sustained them. You know, I couldn't help but think about the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know, like, when they're waking up out of that uh, that tank, right, and ripping things out of Keanu, or Keanu Reeves' uh, neck. Right, right, yeah. because otherwise they were just sitting there in that in that sort of sedative um, state, providing energy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did think it was interesting, though, that uh, that he talks about this, that Cop talks about this emergence into life and, and, and all the stimuli, and I couldn't help but be reminded of cognitive psychologist Alison Gopnik and when she talks about the baby's brain being completely soaked in neurotransmitters mm-hmm. because everything matters. You know, yeah. they don't have a neural pruning yet, and so they're differently conscious from adults, and she makes the argument that they are much more conscious than yeah. adults, which really kind of puts a whole tailspin on this idea mm-hmm. of consciousness and self-awareness. Um, of course, because if you give them the test, the mirror test, it's eight months before, generally, more or yes. less eight months yeah. before they're going to pass that thing. Right. They'll be interested in their mm-hmm. image, but they won't necessarily know that that's them staring back at them, um, we think, right? Yeah. Uh, because earlier than that, though, the, the, the ceiling fan is a big hit. I've been hanging out with some babies recently, <laughs> yeah. and the ceiling fan is apparently th- th- just amazing. It's like watching, uh, it's, it's like the adult version of watching Baraka on an HD screen with Blu-ray. It's just watching that ceiling fan go around and around. You know, my daughter, when she was an infant, was so interested in these trees. Um, I don't know that they're crepe myrtles, but, um, but you know, they're very vertical trees mm-hmm. outside of our window. And so when I would feed her, she would just be, Absolutely engaged in this. And then mm-hmm. I learned later that the neurons that we have in our visual cortex are much more dedicated to the XY plane than diagonal. So it makes sense that these really strong verticals appeal to, to children. But anyway, this is a side note to consciousness here. Now, um, you we were talking about the, the, the infant in the womb being asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course that instantly makes you think, well, what are they dreaming about? Uh, Probably nothing, because uh, one of the studies we were looking at, American uh, psychologist uh, David uh, Folks uh, studied the dreaming uh, and cognitive development uh, in uh, preschoolers. And uh, he believes preschoolers' dreams are are generally static and plain, with no characters that move and act, and hardly any feelings and no memories. Because what's to be processed? I mean, not to turn this into a dream podcast, uh, 
but yeah, it, it the, the dream is a byproduct of cognition, and uh, and and then to to look at uh, a preschooler's dreams, and there's like nothing going on. There's just not enough material to process. But there is stimuli to be processed. There is cognition mm-hmm. in the womb because you have auditory uh, stimuli, and you do have light, right? Yeah. Um, I guess you could, to a degree, say there's taste as well because you have the some of the, the um, molecules of taste crossing over in the placenta. But anyway, the point is, is that there's no context for it, right? Right. All right. So back from dreams in the womb, back from uh, the e- explosive psychedelic exp- experience of birth, um, talking more about the problem of consciousness. Now, you can you can really divide consciousness problems up into the easy problems of consciousness and then the really hard problem of consciousness. Now, uh, if I may, I'll just run through the easy problems of consciousness uh, for us real quick. Um, the ability to discriminate, categorize, and react to environmental stimuli. All right, we can do that. Mm-hmm. I can do that. I just did it now. Uh, the integration of inf- information by a cognitive system. I've got information coming in from three different ways. Uh, like an individual is telling me one thing, but their face is saying another. How am I supposed to interpret to interpret that into a general idea of what's going on? Um, the reportability of mental states. You know, you can talk about how you feel and how you you feel you that you feel. Uh, the ability of a system to access its own internal states. I'm a- aware of how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the focus of attention. I can focus my attention on this, that, or the other, uh, sometimes, given the right amounts of coffee. Uh, the deliberate control of behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm not just a self-moving soul. I, I am It's just caught in the river of, of actions. I can actually think about what I'm doing. Uh, like you're tamping down right now the fact that you really want to dance, right? Yeah. but That's but, what all that gesticulation is. Right. And even though that's on the easy problems list, you have to admit that one really spills out into a whole issue of uh, free will as well. But still. Dancing, yeah. yeah no, when a beat not. comes on, I can't help myself. Well, in a way, you're, you're right. To what extent uh, can you disobey the beat? I don't know. Uh, but then the final one in the easy problems of consciousness, the difference between wakefulness and sleep. Um, we've talked about this enough, so we're not going to dive back into that one. But obviously being awake and being asleep are two different states, different types of consciousness and unconsciousness going on there, uh, but, uh, but being aware of the difference. Yeah, my top is still spinning, so I think this is a dream. <laughs> That's an Inception reference. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the really hard problem, right? And this is David uh, J. Chalmers from the University of Arizona. He talks about this hard problem of being experience, right? Because yes. we think, we perceive, uh, there is a whir of information processing, but there is a largely subjective aspect of this. Yeah. My experience of the universe is not going to be like yours. And there are ways that we can compare those experiences, but we can't definitively really line them up one-to-one. And then when you start looking at other species... This is where you get into uh, into Nagel's work, uh, which we've actually mentioned before in our episode on bats. He had that article, uh, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? It's a huge argument uh, in the whole um, problem of consciousness uh, debate. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, his whole thing is that we're looking at, we can look at a bat, we can see how a bat's mind works, we can, mm-hmm. we can, we form all these uh, theories and, and create an understanding of how the bat experiences the world around it, but we can never really know what it's like. To be a bat, we can never line up our experience of the world, our consciousness, with uh, with with that bat level of consciousness. Yeah, philosopher Bertrand Russell said this about seventy years ago or so. He said, "We know nothing about the intrinsic quality of physical events except when these are mental events that we directly experience." Right. So we can we can look at the bat in all of its glory, but in, until we can you know physically embody this and mentally embody the bat, 
we don't know what the deal is with a bat. Yeah, Nagel said, but fundamentally an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is to be that organism, something it is like for the organism. So head spinning, even just reading that, you know. Okay, so yeah, let's let's uh, let's gather in all of these threads. What are we starting to? Uh, what sort of story are we starting to weave here? The limits of understanding. Yes, limits, and that's where Colin McGinn comes back into it. British philosopher. Um, he was on the panel at World Science, and he kept him him and and, uh, and Christoph Koch. They were the ones who really they kept going at each other uh, in uh, in a fun way, uh, in a very uh, uh, academic yeah. debate kind of way, because both of them were were rock solid on their, their, their views and their, their opinions of the world. One's a neuroscientist, one's a philosopher, and, uh, and it was a fabulous interaction. You can catch that uh, whole discussion online. Is that the one where, uh, McGinn is trying to really pin down Hawk on whether or not he's a, a reductionist or, and like, Hawk is like, no, don't try to label me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he kept saying, I'm really, I'm really surprised. You're actually a duelist. And, uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, they, they kept kind of picking each other. It was, it was wonderful to behold. Um, and that's the great thing about the World Science Festivals. They'll put these panels will have people of different disciplines on there. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a panel of physicists talking about a topic or um, neuroscientists talking about a topic. There's a, you know, a theologian or in this case a philosopher or two to uh, spice things up. So Colin again is uh, the most prominent of the new mysterians. Um, and uh, the new mysterian argument is essentially that the the brain cannot conceive the natural coexistence of mind and brain. And it's not that we're really necessarily that we're dumb. It's not like that we're just too stupid for this. But we've only evolved to carry out certain cognitive feats. Okay, so we can nag- navigate a changing world. We can we can do all of these things uh, that we mentioned in the uh, the the easy problems of consciousness. You know, we can we can deal with all this sense data and make sense of it. But uh, what is the possible evolutionary advantage? Of uh, of gaining uh, an advanced understanding of the nature of consciousness, of like what is the evolutionary advantage to solving the mind body problem? So he's saying this lines up uh, really closely with the uh, concept, the philosophical concept of cognitive closure, mm-hmm. uh, that humans can only hope to understand certain aspects of the universe, and we simply lack the brains to understand everything. So you and I were talking earlier, and I mentioned that perhaps and this is just me. You know, sitting here gobbledygooking, but perhaps philosophizing. I think that's the word you're looking for. No, I think gobbledygooking with a capital G. that perhaps the the reason why we have these limits is we can't go beyond and really figure out what consciousness is and pin it down is because it really is only helpful to us in the context of theory of mind. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about theory of mind as this this ability to not just occupy our own perspective, but to occupy other people's perspective. Right. Like me trying to th- figure out how Julie thinks or how Noel thinks or how a bat thinks. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. You have mm-hmm. to have a self-awareness in, other, in order to be aware of others. So from an evolutionary perspective, perhaps there are limits to that, to that understanding. You know, perhaps there's a sort of line where it's like, okay, and now it's not useful for, to us anymore. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that, uh, on, on one level, it does, it, it rings kind of true to me, you know? We're, and it, I think it rings more and more true with our, our modern world. You know, like you go back, uh, I, I love looking at the, like, retrofuturist stuff and looking at our, our, our ideas about what the future would be like, say, in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, or even mm-hmm. the 80s. Uh, and now we're, we're a lot, we're, for the most part, we're a little more limited in what we dare to dream, uh, for ourselves in the future. Uh, and a lot of that is realizing that there are limits. And if, if there are not hard and fast limits, then there are at least, uh, 
limitations on how uh, quickly we can advance and how quickly we, and, and, and to what extent we can will ourselves to move forward. So that lines up really closely with, I feel like, how we're experiencing the world and how it's matching mm-hmm. up with our dreams of where we would be. Uh, but then uh, it's also uh, something that Christoph Koch was very strongly um, opposed uh, to the idea uh, during the talk, and he said this is just defeatist, you know? And because and, it does go right, completely against the, the can-do attitude of science, the idea that, like, yes, we're going to study this, and we're going we're gonna to, by God, figure it out. And then along comes the new mysterian to say, ah, there's some things we'll never figure out. Go home. You know? Okay, so which brings to this to the table this conversation about these brain projects, this reverse engineering of the brain. So if we're going to try to move forward with this and try to understand what the brain is, what the mind is, mm-hmm. and where consciousness ultimately sits in there, then hey, can't we just throw a supercomputer at it, right? It, yeah, this is this is an important uh, um, topic to discuss because. Uh, Cognitive closure, which I mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that we can only hope to understand so much. One of the things that stands outside of cognitive closure is the steady accumulation and preservation of scientific data over the course of human history. Mm-hmm. And in this, uh, I love to get a little um, fantastic with the uh, with my imaginings of this, but I, I tend to think of like science as this kind of super intellect that we're building outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not limited by the capacity of a single human mind or even a, a dozen human minds. It's not limited by the lifespan of an individual or even the the lifespans of, of whole cultures. Mm-hmm. It stands outside of that. It grows larger and larger. It's like the Internet itself, and the Internet is a part of it, and it's becoming this kind of super intellect. So it's this collective data of both humans and machine. Right. Right. And it's affected by our own cognitive closure, but it's not limited by cognitive closure. So the idea is that you could get enough data here going, right? You could study the human brain. You could try to um, have the supercomputer take every data point it could and string together some sort of understanding of how the brain actually works. And, yes. and I say actually because honestly, we're at a point right now that neuroscience is still very, like this is a, a, a very young field. Yeah, I know every day, especially if you follow any science feeds out there, including our own, it's like there's always some sort of new, new exciting bit of neuroscience coming out. And we talk about a lot of them here. But And so it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we are we are much closer to a full understanding than we are. Yeah. And so even if you could produce the data by the machines uh, in the something we talked about earlier, it doesn't necessarily mean that our mind in its limited understanding could recognize the pattern that emerges. Right. It's like we, we create this this genie of science that stands outside of ourselves and then it reaches the point where it can say, hey, I figured out that whole consciousness thing for you. Let me explain it to you. And then it explains it to us. And we still have the cognitive closure in place to where we still can't understand what the the uh, the explanation is. So I wanted to bring John Horgan into the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. He is uh, a writer for Scientific American. He has a blog called Crosscheck, and he wouldn't, I don't think, paint himself as a new Mysterian, but no. he brings some very interesting arguments into the limits of our understanding uh, vis-a-vis these brain projects. Yes, uh, and you mentioned uh, Henry uh, Markham earlier, um, mm-hmm. the the head guy at the Blue Brain Project, and uh, and Horgan was was quite critical <laughs> of this gentleman. Yeah, he he made the point of well, Markham actually he read a couple of of Horgan's blog 
Mm-hmm. This is such like this science gossip. Yeah, he responded um, in the, the comments even. He responded yeah. in the comments and um, basically saying like, I think it was something like a lack of vision basically on Horgan's part. Yeah. And Horgan said, well, I'm going to take some of the comments that you made about another brain project. Yeah, like a mouse brain project, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And saying that it wasn't doable. And, you know, but, but now you're sort of heralding this brain project as being the end all be all the sort of like, can we get to the unified theory of the brain? And so Horgan says, look, we, you know, neuroscientists can't mimic brains because they lack basic understanding of how the brains work or how the brain works. And they don't know what to include in the simulation and what to leave out. In other words, he's saying that the neural code that they're trying to figure out, they don't even have the basic understandings to figure out what that code might consist of. And so he's saying you can't say that this is an apples to apples thing when it comes to like the brain project or the human genome project. Because he's saying that when the human genome project began, uh, there was already a basic understanding of genetics and the genetic code had already been deciphered. Mm-hmm. So they could make some real progress. But he's saying, look, you have all sorts of factors here that affect the brain. You have neurotransmitters, hormones, neural growth factors, chemicals. Um, he says that there are neurons that display a dizzying variety of forms and functions and that researchers have discovered scores of distinct types of neurons uh, just in the visual system. So he's basically saying if we don't know all the components yet, well, we know the components, but we don't know necessarily how they operate, then how can you reverse engineer something like that? Yeah, he made a fabulous comparison, Horgan did, uh, comparing it to the cargo cults, um, in the South Pacific, uh, the Melanesian cults, where uh, the, the idea, of course, is that they would see planes flying over uh, during the Second World War, and they were inspired by them. You know, supposedly they thought they were, you know, these were wholly magical things, mm-hmm. and so they created uh, uh, versions of them themselves. They created models out of, uh, out of uh, you know, straw materials and what have you around them, and they could create, of course, the form of an airplane, the shape of an airplane. They're understanding their model of what an airplane is mm-hmm. but it they couldn't take off in it it didn't fly the function of it was 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 not present so they could create a model but not a working model they could create a, a model based on their limited understanding of the thing no this is this is highly critical right but there is some i think that there's some weight to what he is saying it's like you know this could be premature in trying to do and to reverse engineer the brain and he brought up neuroscientist Donald Stein at University of, uh, excuse me, Emory University in, in saying that, um, they're completely ignoring multiple levels of the brain. And we're talking about the glial cells. Mm-hmm. And you and I talked about the glial cells at length when we were talking about what makes a genius genius, right? Because yes. the more white matter, the more glial cells that you have. It's a great word too, just to say it sounds like something the nutty professor would, uh, would belt out. Glial cells. Yeah. Is that, no. Um, but sort of this fiber optic system that can transport things really quickly. Like the more you have, the, the quicker you can think and the quicker you can put together ideas. So he's saying like, this just, it's so nuanced, so complex. You know, how can you really get to where you need to go? And on top of that, uh, there's the microbiome. And this is mm-hmm. something we've talked about too. This is this idea that we are colonized by microbial cells, bacterial cells. And they are affecting our brain. And we talked about this in the podcast about the gut being the second brain, because those microbial cells can determine uh, what sort of level of anxiety you're mm-hmm. experiencing, um, all sorts of mental states, and even your immune system, which can uh, dictate, you know, neurological disorders. So it's just a... 
Yeah, it brings us right back to the whole mind-body problem that we've talked, not the mind-body problem, but the mind-body connection, the whole centaur thing, Mm -hmm. where we're not a rider on a horse, but we're a uh, a rider fused with horse. And so anytime you, if you really try to think of the brain cut off on its own, you're not getting the full picture of the organism. So, yeah, like you say, it just gets more and more complex the closer you look. Yeah, and then sometimes I do. I think that the the problem of consciousness is, again, it's subjective, and how do we all even define it for ourselves? So even just pinning down exactly what that is, the hard problem, right? The experience is is sort of the first part of trying to figure it out or reverse engineering consciousness. Yeah, like are there... Are there truly varying levels of consciousness among humans? You know, because we, getting into the realm of, uh, of, of uh, theology and, uh, and New Ageism and, uh, and, and Buddhist philosophy, you get into the, the ideas that, that they're individuals at higher states of consciousness. You know, like uh, someone who has achieved uh, Buddhahood is at a different level of consciousness than, mm-hmm. than just uh, somebody that's completely lost in their thoughts. Someone who can say, hey, I'm feeling angry right now. Why am I fe- feeling angry? Is at a different level of consciousness than someone that is simply angry. Or someone who is dreaming and they're angry, yes. right? Because they're in a, they're sort of in that womb sedative, uh, quality of being, right? So how aware can you be when you're dreaming? Yeah. And is it possible for there to be some sort of a super consciousness as well? And when will the internet become self-aware? Exactly. When, when could the, the internet become this super consciousness? Again, this idea of we build all this science. And then it eventually becomes the genie that we can ask this ever-towering question about the, the, the nature of consciousness. At what point does it become that, uh, that, that living genie, that, that, uh, that just powerful intellect that we can quiz about this stuff? And at what point does it recognize that we can't even understand the data that it's giving us and say, yeah. oh, man, So maybe it, it just placates us at that point and says, oh, well, uh, you'll, you know, it's... Uh, I don't even know. I'm not even sure what the, what the, the, the answer would be. Maybe they would just put us off. Be like, I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> manana, manana. Yeah. Uh, maybe the, uh, the super unelect at this point, I mean, it, it essentially becomes God. Okay, so if you're looking for a center, the seat of consciousness, yes. you could say that you're looking for a cohesive thing, being, mm-hmm. and that in some ways you're trying to cast off entropy. And cling to this idea that there's some sort of stability, aka God, the center, right? So, in some ways, I do think that this search for consciousness is a bit of a red herring, because these things, this is a construct, and it's not. It will always be abstract. You're not going to be able to find it in the concrete. So there you have it: the quest to understand human consciousness. New Mysterianism. And I should point out that, you know, we're talking about like building an imperfect model of something, but obviously building imperfect models, that's on the road to figuring out how something works. So you look back through the history of science and science is filled with imperfect uh, understandings and imperfect models, but those lead to, to more perfected versions. Like science is often wrong, but science is not a, a solid state. Science is a movement towards understanding. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I am very excited by these brain yes. projects and I, I would love to have, you know, be able to dump my brain into a machine and, and have like a nice little backup. Um, yeah. That would be great. I think that there's all sorts of really cool implications of this, but in the context of the hard problem mm-hmm. and um and and as starting point to try to figure out what we don't quite understand you know, it's a, it's a valid conversation. Yeah, and I also don't want to miscategorize uh, uh, Colin McGinn's uh, uh, new Mysterianism approach. He's not saying that we cannot understand 
the stuff. He's just he's saying we should uh, we should have our minds open to that possibility. All right. Well, um, consciousness, it's the, uh, the really the closest thing to us and also the most mysterious. Uh, and, of course, someone could say people have said the very same thing about God. So there you go. More uh, connection between the quest for understanding consciousness and the quest uh, to touch the face of God right there. So since it's that close to everyone, I'm sure everyone has some thoughts on this particular topic, and we would love to hear them. Uh, tell us how you perceive your own consciousness. How do you perceive consciousness around you? Do you buy into this uh, new mysterianism or uh, or the, the uh, cognitive closure? Or do you, do you really think we can do it? you think it's just a matter of time before we, we crack that nut? Or do we have to create the, the genie to crack it for us and then we find it inedible anyway? Uh, let us know. You can uh, find us online in a number of different places. Of course, we're all over the social media. We're on Twitter. We're on, what, D+. We're on uh, Tumblr. We're on Facebook. Uh, we're also on YouTube. That's where our, our videos uh, are, at uh, Mind Stuff Show uh, on YouTube. And then also the Mothership, the main website, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And you can always drop us a line. Let us know your thoughts at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 